Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Sex trafficking affects millions of women around the globe, generating billions of dollars for the criminals who traffic women. For the few women who escape, it can be extremely difficult to find safety and stability in society. Filmmakers Sadvi Sadali Shri Sadvi Anabuti are Jane monks who created the new documentary Surviving Sex Trafficking, which I executive produced. They are with me today to discuss their film and the broader problem of sex trafficking. You know, we don't want to turn now to the worldwide crisis of modern-day slavery. Sex trafficking, with over 45 million victims currently enslaved in human trafficking, and less than 2% of them estimated to ever escape. Every time I tell my story, I'm re-traumatized. But if sharing my story means that one more girl has a chance at freedom, then it's worth it for me. A dangerous, crime-ridden area with a lot of motels and a lot of men. Men who pretended to care about her. I thought these guys were my boyfriends. They gave me food. They gave me the clothes that I needed. When you make a film and you get in touch with the survivors, you tap into your own pain. My name is Sadi Sidali Shri. I'm a Jane monk a U.S. Army Iraq War veteran, a TEDx speaker, activist, and filmmaker. I'm passionate about social movements that focus on nonviolence, human and animal rights, gender equality, and anti-trafficking. My name is Sadvi Anubuti. I'm a Jane Monk speaker, activist, filmmaker, and human and animal rights advocate. Since learning about trafficking, I dedicate my efforts to work in practical ways to eradicate mental, emotional, and most importantly, physical slavery. We produced two documentaries on sex trafficking, Stopping Traffic, which was released in 2017, and Surviving Sex Trafficking. Sorry, not sorry. Sri and Anabuti, thank you so much for being here. I guess let's start off by just helping my listeners understand a bit about who you are. Can you tell us about who you are individually? Thank you, Alyssa, for having us here with you today. My name is Sadali Shri, and I'm an Iraq War veteran. I'm now a Jane monk and also an activist and filmmaker. I've been dedicated to practicing and spreading the message of nonviolence. And because of this principle, I've been inspired to, to make films to help make a difference in our world. Thank you. 
Alyssa, it's an honor to be here with you today. Just like Sadhvi Sidali Sri, my name is Sadhvi Anubhuti. Sadhvi in Sanskrit means female monk. So my full name is Sadhvi Anubhuti. And I'm also a Jain monk, and I'm also fully dedicated to spreading the message of nonviolence. I renounce the world to fully dedicate my life to helping people to become more spiritual, to work on themselves, to awaken their soul and spread joy, happiness and compassion. Our listeners may not be familiar with Jane Monks. Can you just tell us a bit about what that means? Jainism is a, a very ancient religion uh, in India, and it's contemporary to Buddhism. So with Jainism, their primary focus is on nonviolence, which means feeling oneness with all living beings. To me, that's the ultimate form of unconditional love because you don't want to hurt anyone. You don't, whether it's a little bug, it's an animal, it's a human being, everybody wants to live. Every single soul wants to live. So our mission is, and, and the connection to it is like every soul is you. So when someone feels pain, you feel the pain. And so through that practice, we do our best to not cause suffering into someone else's life, whether it's a bug, animal, or a human as well as our own, because we can also be violent to ourselves. So practicing that nonviolence towards ourselves and others, that's our, our main spiritual practice in Jainism. We did what we could to help her mission. With my spiritual teacher, spending time with the girls, teaching them healing techniques through breathing, yoga, and meditation. The same teachings and techniques that he taught me to fight my own pain and PTSD. And talk to me, and I totally agree with you, and it's such a, a beautiful practice. Talk to me about the film. Why did you make it? What was the thing that made you say, you know what, we, we need to tell this story? Anubhuti and I, when Anubhuti came to the ashram and dedicated her life to renouncing, we actually opened up and shared our past pain. And that's when we opened up of our own child sexual abuse. And just even having that conversation felt odd and, and awkward and, and a bit taboo. And so we decided to make a promise to each other and to all souls that when the time comes, we're going to be dedicated to raising awareness about this taboo subject. And then I had learned about human trafficking through the film, The Whistleblower. And it, it hit me so deeply, just immense pain. I was crying after I watched the film. And I promised myself I would do something about it, but I knew it wasn't the right time. And then when Anubhuti came and we made that promise. A few years later, we decided this is the time. We need to do something about it. We need to share our stories. We need to share our pain. So this way we can prevent that pain happening to, to children, men and women. This might seem like a really rudimentary question, but I think it's important for the listeners to understand who are the people who are sex trafficked and how does it happen to them? Anybody can become a victim of sexual trafficking or sex trafficking. There are some factors that make a person become more at risk than being vulnerable. We do know that poverty, substance abuse, mental health, debt, dysfunction within families, homelessness, all of these things make a person more uh, likely to be trafficked. So these are some of the, uh, the reasons why people get trafficked. And the film focuses on a few of the women who 
were able to escape. Do most women and girls who are trafficked get out? According to the UN, only 1% are able to get out. And with the statistics out there, they say 30 million, 45 million are being trafficked every year. So if we think only 1% are able to get out, that's a really one small number. And out of that 1%, how many people are actually getting help? Angela, who's featured in our film, watched our first film, Stopping Traffic, in New York. And she was inspired to reach out when we were looking for survivors to be a part of the film. And she's like, I want to share my story. Like, people don't know what's going on. Months later, we traveled to Las Vegas, the city where Angie spent most of her trafficked years. But she almost didn't come at all. Whether she was triggered, got scared, or had doubts, she missed her flight. Luckily, Southwest Airlines understood her situation and booked her a new flight. When she arrived, it was as if nothing was wrong. Like many survivors, she harbored a pain that was invisible on the outside. And it's interesting because she was in Dallas and we're like, hey, our ashram's an hour away. We'll definitely come see you. And so just that moment of connection and just putting something out there, the survivors want to tell their stories. Not all of them, but some of them do. And not that they want to all become survivor leaders, but to share their story, their testimony, their pain, to make people realize this issue is happening in so many places, hidden behind like a music industry or hip hop culture or different cultures. And people are, people need to know about it. Just so people understand what happens to those who do not make it out. A lot of them commit suicide. A lot of them get killed in the process. A lot of them never come back home because of the shame. And so they stay in it for many years until, you know, they're no longer here. I remember when we went to New Orleans and we went to Eden House Shelter and the girls, now women in their 40s, they were trafficked when they were younger. But then what are they going to do afterwards? That's all they know. So they continue it. And unless shelters do outreach and visit them often, then they start to get the idea, okay, maybe I can get out of this life. Maybe there is help. Maybe there are resources. Maybe people do care. But it takes the effort of nonprofits to go out and reach them. I also think that there's also a perception when you're on the inside that nobody cares, that they are forgotten about, or that this is going to be their lives forever. I want to just touch a little bit, and you did talk about it, but I want to talk a little bit about why it's so hard to escape sex trafficking. I think the um, the traffickers, their tactics are very effective. The manipulation the physical, mental, uh, psychological abuse that they use. The people in trafficking, they don't necessarily have chains. 
but the chains are coming a different way. And that is through abuse. It's through force. It's through coercion. It is through all of that manipulation that the traffickers know how to use very well. Angela, in the film, she escapes because she was nearly beaten to death and a police officer was able to help her out. So because of a near-death experience, she was able to escape. And she had already been planning to get out, but the traffickers, they want to keep them under their reign. They want to be in full control. They want to continue making money off of them. And so when they start to see like, well, I'm losing my grip, that's where the violence comes in. The fear, I'm going to kill your family. Or like in Carla's case, who we interviewed in Mexico a few years ago, she had the trafficker's baby. And he was like, well, I'm going to kill the baby. So you have to continue working for me. And it wasn't until a client cared enough about her. He was talking to her more of, of, of a friend and companion, nothing sexual. And he was the one who helped her escape. She was a child. She was being trafficked from 12 to age 16. So he was the one that saw her innocence of being a child and tried to help her out. But I think also a lot of the victims don't recognize themselves as victims of sex trafficking. They don't even know what that is in many cases. I was 18. I didn't understand the severity of minors being trafficked. To me, it just reminded me of the drug dealers and how they get hotel rooms to work out of or trap houses to work out of. So it was just another underworld of the ghetto like a female hustler. And so when you don't know that you're being a victim of something like this, a criminal, how are you supposed to even ask for help? So that's another dimension of this. Also, girls are groomed by what they think are their boyfriends. And so they fall in love with him and he takes care of them. He gives them the riches, the life, the lifestyle, the glamorous life, whatever it is, and they get sucked into it. And so something like a crackdown happens. They are so attached. They are so in love with their boyfriend slash pimp trafficker. So they actually want to protect them. It's heartbreaking. And the documentary talks about some of the challenges survivors face when they do escape. And you mentioned before, to me, one of the most heartbreaking scenes has one of the survivors discussing her encounter with police when she is able to escape. Let's just walk through that and talk a bit about how law enforcement treats survivors of trafficking. I think there is a lot of lack of understanding about the situation, the problem. And I think because of law enforcement not being aware that the girls, the women, or even the men were groomed or were made to believe that they wanted to be in that kind of situation, they don't know how to approach them. And so oftentimes they make the big mistake of interrogating them. Like, why were you there in the first place? Why did you even do that? Rather than trying to understand how did they get there? How did this happen? And so the questioning becomes very offensive. They don't get the right support, the right resources immediately for them to be out of that situation. It's a big problem that we still have, but I think we're making progress. I think law enforcement is getting trained more and more. And I do believe that things are changing, starting to. I remember when we screened stopping traffic at the Tarrant County Sheriff Department and one of the Sheriff said, thank you for making this film. I had no idea that they had a story. Because usually when we arrest, we're arresting for prostitution, but I never thought, I thought they wanted to be there. 
I didn't know that there was a story before this. So through that kind of education, through that training, I think that's how awareness happens. And the more education, especially among law enforcement, because they're usually the first responders to a situation or to the hospitals, the medical staff. So that's really important because they can actually save a life or prevent them from getting back into the life. When I got home is when I started to feel a little bit better, but I didn't have a home to come back to. When I, can't, when I got off the bus, I went straight to the police station. The line of questions was totally inappropriate. Well, you were out here for New Year's drinking, huh? Yes, sir, I was. Well, how much had you had to drink? Just, it was very condescending, very demeaning, very, well, you said you, he met him in a strip club? Well, what was his name? And I was like, is there anybody else I can see? And he's like, it's just very short. And, well, are you sure? You know, you didn't want to go. You didn't. And I, it got to the point where I was like, you know what? That's okay. You know, I, I don't have to worry about it. And it's a problem that many survivors of sex crimes face when reporting to the police. Other than awareness, other than making films like this, what are your thoughts on how we fix that? One way is, of course, legislation. Texas uh, became the first state to make it a felony to buy sex. Automatically, that already sets a precedence for maybe other states to follow suit because how many states want to take that step to punish the buyers and punish the traffickers. Right now, they punish the prostitutes, the sex workers who are on the street, who are mostly there, not by choice. Maybe it's their situation or they're being trafficked. But what about the ones that the desires that are buying the sex? Um, like you mentioned in Sorry Not Sorry, the sickness, right? It's that mental sickness that's there that creates the desires that makes them sex that makes them want to watch porn and so forth, which creates the desire again now to find someone to implement those acts. We've heard stories from survivors where these men have really crazy fantasies and they just act them out on them and force them to do things because their wives don't want to do it. These people go through so much. The survivors go through so much. And usually it's from such a young age. And then they find the, the strength or the, someone else's empathy or compassion. and They're able to escape their traffickers. Let's talk a little bit about the challenges that survivors face when they are able to escape. There are many challenges. The fact that the, the trauma, that's just starting with the trauma by itself. Everything that they've gone through, everything that they've experienced, from physical, mental abuse, strangulation, getting beat up, to having to be raped over and over again, to not having a place to go back to. They don't have a home. They don't have a resume with all this experience to come back home and get a job. They now have probably a lot of legal responsibilities, like legal fees, attorneys. Probably they have medical conditions they need to take care of. It's even with the brain damage that they receive from all the abuse, dental, I mean, all kinds of problems. And that's the importance of this film is to talk to people, share with them what is happening to survivors because the journey of healing has just begun for them. And this healing journey can take a lifetime for them to fully recover from this. And it is very important for people to continue to put resources into rescuing victims. But what are we going to do with them? Once we rescue them, a lot of resources now need to go into their healing. Sadvi Shri, I don't want to give too much of the film away, but 
you intertwine this story with your own personal history. And I'm just wondering what that was like for you personally. It was really hard, but I feel like the film freed me. I realized that I wanted to give a voice to survivors, be a voice for the voiceless. But then I had this dark secret and it actually took making the film and sharing pieces of it with my family and friends. My name is Sadvi Sidali Shri. I'm a Jain monk and an Iraq war veteran. I've struggled with PTSD, not only from serving as an army medic, but from repressed childhood trauma that came flooding back. I only knew something happened to me. I forgot it. You blacked it out. I blacked it out. And it wasn't until I went into a deep meditation on October 2013. And I was just like, just lying there, just going deep into my soul. And all of a sudden I was reliving everything. And that was the way I told them what happened to me because that's that was the hidden secret and all of them were shocked. And because of that, it allowed me to connect to survivors in a different way, just getting deep into the pain, the honesty for me. It just, they trust you because now they feel they you understand even a little bit. Their experience is very extreme, but pain is universal. We can all connect in that way. So yes, it was definitely freeing. And in a way, this film helped me to heal. And that part of my heart isn't so dark anymore. What role do you think that the patriarchy plays in perpetuating sex trafficking? There's definitely, there's no gender equality, right? There's a lack of respect for women, politics, religion, it's dominated by men. So we have these ideas surrounding women based on these men's ideas. Like I was thinking a few years back, if there was equality in religion and politics, things would change so much because a lot of people go to church and they're getting these ideas. And there's a story where I was a little kid and I was like, why are there no female priests? Like, why can't we hear their voice? What's their interpretation of the Bible? But all we hear is this male version. and. I'd say religion is at the top. Most people believe in God and it trickles down. The politicians and everybody goes to church. So if we're getting these ideas and there's a lack of quality, so it's going to just spread like that throughout society. But most people don't go to the very top. I took a feminist class over this uh, pandemic, and one of the first things that they taught us was that women, along with the subjugation of women, we were owned, basically. There was an ownership, and that's why the laws against sex crimes took so long and are not followed through with at all. We were seen as being a piece of property. Yep, that is true. In history of, of religion, 
and I'm sorry to interrupt you there, but it's absolutely correct. Even for us, our tradition, we go back to the vows that monks used to take about 3,000 years ago. There were four vows, and one of them was non-possessions. And a celibacy was not part of the four vows. But later, about 300 years later, they added the vow of celibacy. But why was it not part of it before was because women were literally considered a possession. And so they didn't have to add the celibacy part because if you automatically dropped all possessions, then automatically you drop celibacy as well and or sex. So later on, they had to add it because the status of women started to slowly come up and they were no longer seen as much as possessions. But it is so true. And you visited trafficked women in India while making this film. How is sex trafficking different in different parts of the world? It's very different because of the situation, why it happens. Poverty is a driver, especially in third world countries. In the Philippines, I interviewed young girls and they were saying like, my mom sold me to somebody because they needed to put food on the dinner table. And that's just so sad that it has come to this. Like, I have to sell my daughter just so I can feed the family. In India, it was the first time we actually were able to go into a brothel and it was so creepy. We met the madam and she knew we were monks and she was like kind and welcoming. And it was just so interesting because we have to look at the bigger picture. We were guided through Mumbai's notorious red light district. It was chilling. I used my phone sparingly to take some video, but was asked not to use it too much as it would upset the ladies living there. People are here. Is it okay to film? Okay. Do I go all the way up or right here? We went into the living quarters of prostituted women. This is a family room? Yes. Sometimes there is a pimp or madam involved, and sometimes prostitution is there or their family's only means of survival. It's what Angie calls survival trafficking. What's their situation? Not to justify, she's trying to survive. They're also trying to survive. And she showed us like, okay, this is the room. This is the room that they use. And, you know, we filmed that. And then we got to go deeper into the living quarters. And we even got to see her own room, very small, very simple, nothing extravagant. And then the next day we went back and that room, the very first room that she showed us, she was just sitting right outside and we knew exactly what was happening. And it was just, it's so hard because they are trying to survive. And I also feel like they're shamed and in different countries, maybe they have a caste system. So it's a little bit, their people are lower than being a human being, so they're not going to get the resources. There's stigma surrounding it here, and we talk about it. So I can't imagine what it must be like in developing nations throughout the world. The stigma attached to it has to be something that is very difficult, if at all, overcome. I think, again, education is so important. They're starting to make films. There's more community engagement and activism. But what is it going to take? Because Again, like Saviana Budi was saying, it's been thousands and thousands of years. So what, what is it going to take? That's the, the biggest question. Even with Jeffrey Epstein and, and Ghislaine Maxwell happening right now, and 
a lot of attention is on that. And fortunately, she's been charged. I think everybody's wanting to seek justice in the sense that they want to see the people that are hurting others fall down. And if there's no repercussions, if there's no public just outrage, then I don't really think things can change because if they know someone can get away with it, then little old me, you know, like who doesn't have that much money, they're not going to pay attention to me. And if you think about the punishment with buyers and traffickers, a couple of years, a few months, get parole, it's so easy. And so I think in that sense, if we had one person that really goes down and is that example, like this is what can happen to you, maybe some fear will come up, maybe it will happen less. But ultimately, I think it's human desire. And unless people actually start working on themselves, having like mental health support to keep their desires in check, then the fantasies will continue and people will want to start acting out on those fantasies. So I feel like it's a huge web because of awareness, things are beginning to change, but it's still not enough. Yeah. And I also think we focus too much on the perpetrator and not enough on the survivors. And I think that's what your film does so beautifully. And what, to a larger extent, the Me Too movement was able to do is where we were able to redirect the focus on the survivors. And I think a lot of that needs to happen. But also, it's interesting because as I'm listening to you talk about it, you keep using the word fantasy, which almost romanticizes these criminal acts a little bit. And so I want to be very clear that there are a lot of really good men that have fantasies that would never hurt or traffic a woman. And so I think that's just a really important. And I don't know what the alternative word is, but I want to be careful and mindful when we're using words. You know, I think language is really important with these topics. Is there anything that surprised you while making the film or that you learned either about yourself about society? I think human trafficking and sex trafficking is so multidimensional that we tend to think it's one thing, but in every situation, almost it's, it's almost always different. That's what made it so difficult to grasp this concept of what human trafficking is. And I think going back to just why this is happening a little bit, I think we need to go back to why this sexual abuse is happening, but at the same time, speaking up to, which I think you made an amazing thing by amplifying the movement, the Me Too movement. And I think that was so important because that just pushed many of us to speak up, to express what happened to many of us in childhood and, you know, throughout the years. And I think once we all begin to speak up, expressing what's happened, I think we can actually reduce this problem that's happening out there. But yeah, it's surprising the fact that a lot of the women that are being trafficked now, it started a lot because of child sexual abuse. So if we can prevent child sexual abuse, we can prevent a lot of what's happening with sex trafficking. And a lot of times we think prostitution, many women are empowered to do this kind of work. And There is no doubt that some women want to do this. From what we found out is that the majority of them is not something they want to do. We have heard that almost up to 90% of the women in sex trafficking are there by force, by coercion, by fraud or something like that. They don't want to be there. So I think another aspect that's important to identify is the difference between sex trafficking and prostitution. 
When and how can people see Surviving Sex Trafficking? Surviving Sex Trafficking is going to be in theaters on March 25th, and then we'll have our digital release on April 8th. Amazing. And if people want to get involved, is there a website they can go visit? They can visit stoppingtraffic.org. That's our nonprofit uh, dedicated to supporting sex trafficking survivors and shelters, and 100% of the proceeds from our films go to them. And finally, what gives you hope? The survivors. They're so resilient and they have gone through so much. But to be able to see them smile and laugh and love, that teaches us everything. Well, you both give me hope. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank Thank you, you, Alyssa. Thank you so much for all your support as well. My name is Murphy Dell, and I'm a human trafficking survivor. I want you all to think of a teenager you know who's shy, awkward, insecure, has a hard time making friends. That was me. Then a cool girl befriended me. She was everything I wanted to be. Popular, had the looks. She wanted to be my friend. She invited me to her birthday party. I happily accepted. She picked me up from my home in Hamilton, Ontario, and she drove me back up to her place in Toronto. We had a fun night celebrating her birthday. The next morning, I was under the intention that she was driving me back to my dad's home in Hamilton. We ended up in an unfamiliar parking lot, and I could see the Toronto airport. She parked the car and said, you owe me $600 for the rental car, for the gas, for the club entry, and the drinks last night. I was confused. I knew I did not owe her any money. And where had my friend gone? She reaches in the back seat, tosses me a bag. It had a bikini and heels in it. Sex trafficking stems from a belief among men that women are sexual commodities, which can be purchased, traded, and owned like livestock. If you're serious about solving this horrible problem in our culture, you have to be serious about dismantling the patriarchal systems which enable it to exist. This part is for the men. So, fellas, hi, listen up. If you visited your local massage parlor, looking for sex. If you go out of town and look on the internet for escorts, if you're scrolling Craigslist and other forums wanting to pay for sex, you are supporting the sex trafficking of women and girls. These are not sex workers. These are enslaved people, and you are taking advantage of it. You're not one of the good guys. You're part of the problem, so just stop doing it. For victims of sex trafficking and all sex crimes, we need a law enforcement response that centers on believing and supporting victims. When we hear women who've had to endure trafficking have had to endure rape and sexual assault over and over again and then have to endure questioning about what they did to deserve it, 
we're doing it wrong. These women deserve our empathy, compassion, support, and belief. To learn more about how you can support victims of sex trafficking, visit stoppingtraffic.org. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.